We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com, follow us on Twitter at FDRLST, and make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Christopher Bedford, senior editor at The Federalist, and by Sean Riley. Sean, can you tell us your title and what it is that you do at uh, The American Conservative? Sure. So I'm the senior director for advancement and programs at The American Conservative magazine. Um, I basically run all of our non-editorial programs, as well as help to just kind of generally advance the institution overall. So, And I was going to say, you're, you're also uh, a lecturer um, with our friends at Hillsdale College, right? That's correct. Yeah, as of uh, this semester, I am now a lecturer in government at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center Van Andel Graduate School of Government. Excellent. Well, uh, so so maybe La you can. <laughs> I was gonna say yeah, that's that's actually great because Sean is friends with Chris, and I feel like Chris actually needs a lot of lectures. Um, <laughs> so it's sort of a perfect mm-hmm. perfect fit. You are a tyrant, Emily. <laughs> well, we're gonna talk about a piece that uh, Chris wrote, and it Brilliant. makes it, it does make an important point, which is essentially that uh, all of the tools that have been um, usurped by, let's say, petty tyrants in our bureaucracy um, for dealing with COVID, uh, the COVID emergency, which was a very real emergency at one point. Um, and of course, we've long, uh, we've long passed that point. It um, seemed like it would be. Yeah. Well, well, it, it was before we knew as much as we did. Um, but what seemed like, or what was an emergency at one point, all of those tools will now be used, can and will now be used in the fight against the left's uh, concerns about climate change. Chris, uh, give us a, an overview of that piece. So I was I was w- been watching the climate uh, conference in Glasgow. Uh, did you fall asleep? <laughs> yeah, like Joe Biden did. Well, it is it is largely a collection of the most boring speeches, and I, I was actually feeling a little bit bad for President Biden there, like the indignity of having to sit through that garbage. If I was if I was President of the United States, there would be no shot that I would be lectured by bureaucrats and scientists and world leaders at some climate conference in Glasgow. Like, I'd go to Edinburgh Castle or something, <laughs> maybe hit a pub, and, like, send someone else. Like, make Kamala do that. The, uh, <laughs> especially Sleepy Joe. The, But there was also, it ended with all the kind of uh, classic stuff. The U.S. and China sign a joint pledge to do something to make it so the temperature of the entire globe changes. You know, sometime in the next 10 years. Uh, China won't be held accountable, of course. Uh, the British Prime Minister, his his closing message was, go on and get to it. <laughs> okay, get to what exactly? Um, you had you had Tom Friedman uh, over at the New York Times, you know, the guy who always wishes that we had the dictatorial powers of China, saying that he left this feeling both excited and also frightened. You know, like Tom Friedman talking about his feelings at, at that age is just really off-putting. And but but I also really kind of enjoyed some of the week. Like third, I, I felt like it was just relaxing. It was a return to a simpler, kind of stupider time <laughs> when there were just drum circles and Peruvian pa- <laughs> pan flutes or whatever, and these like twenty foot creepy puppets that talk about how you're sacrificing <laughs> yeah, their children. Yeah. Oh my gosh, some kind of gypsy thing. It was super dumb. <laughs> and then like these just crying teenagers who took the entire week off from school after like literally not being in school for a year and a half so they could hold signs and sob and like say things like, you are all going to kill me if you don't literally listen to my teenage opinions right now and do it. And it's like, this, it's just classic leftist garbage. Thousands <laughs> of feckless... Uh, leader, leaders flying in from around the world to like pledge to save it, and I was thinking this is great, this is funny, this is this is back to normal. It's like, but then I remembered, oh, actually, never mind, nothing is normal anymore. Since the last time we had one of these conferences, 
we've surrendered control of our government to Tony Fauci. Like these, these idiot, weakling, stupid, constantly shifting their opinion technocrats now have complete control. These, these bureaucracies that decide like, oh, yeah, in Florida, you will submit to this bureaucracy with some unforeseen power that I have over viruses. We've laid the ground. We as, as American people have voluntarily for this kind of silly crisis that we have invented. I, Emily's a little bit of a cuck on this. You, you can see her over there on the small screen texting. <laughs> the, uh, I'm not. I'm actually not texting. Okay. These, this make-believe crisis that we have is the kind of things that they made us do were change your travel, no longer go out, no longer go to work, stop commuting, you know, don't fly in airplanes. We had censorship. We had, if, if you think masks are stupid, you're banned. If you think that there's something wrong with the COVID mandates or vaccine mandates, you're banned. If you think that COVID came from a lab for a period of time, you're banned. Um, China got off scot-free, as they always seem to do. They do that certainly with the climate stuff. They definitely do that after shutting down the entire global economy. And I'm sitting there going, this is, this is actually a brave new world that's a lot different from this stupid antics, like the marches being constrained to the marches. This is now a world where they have all the tools that they need to crush us uh, in the name of permanent emergency. So it actually takes on a little bit more, more of a frightening feel than it did previously. Yeah. So yeah, this is, a, this is an idea that's long been with us. Uh, you know, the the idea that that emergencies are dangerous for liberty, um, and you can see it too. You know, whenever we have a war or something like that, emergencies uh, are the thing that kind of comes along to to uh, to, to trump to, to trump liberty. Uh, you know, the the problem the, the the thing here is we now know that this is not nearly as dangerous as uh, it was initially thought. And so, right. You're talking was, about COVID or climate about, change? Because both. Well, I guess both. I mean, I guess both. <laughs> yeah, it, it, apply, it applies to both, I guess. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, look, the science, the, but but it's, it's even worse than this, uh, or, or the, the real dangerous part here, I think, is the politicization of science, right? And, get, and they're, they're, they mirror in, um, in both cases, uh, there are people who claim the mantle of science, and then they assume that they therefore do not have to argue for policy positions that they claim uh, are implicated by the science. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that science does not do policy. <laughs> Scientists do not do policy. Scientists give us data, and then we can sort of infer, we can debate about uh, what kinds of policies are right. But that's the political process, and we, you cannot simply bypass politics uh by claiming the mantle of science so you know th to my mind that's that's the the dangerous part here uh is well the, there's there are a couple of things one the, the loss of freedom but also two the loss of the authority of of even science to to um to do what it's supposed to do and then the truncation of the political process we we stand to potentially lose our ability to engage in politics uh rightly understood The way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, as we cover here all of the time, but security tools are one of those things that's mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, and devices, and more, all in one easy-to-use app. Aura provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats 
fast. Like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with a million dollars in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your information and devices with one simple subscription. How nice is that? With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. So for a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash Federalist. Go to Aura.com slash Federalist to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash Federalist. I, I mean, that's and part of the reason I agree with all of that. And part of the reason I think what Chris said earlier when he was sort of joking about this being a brilliant column, um, it actually is extremely important. And you're really one of the only people making this point right now. But I remember. <laughs> I know you'd see it my way. Talking to your microphone. <laughs> uh, the, uh, this is a, a an ongoing problem with Chris. Um, so, but the, the point is the concerns that the left has about uh, climate are sort of pitched apocalyptically. And we've seen surveys of, for instance, young people showing that this is a, a deeply rooted fear that is actually literally giving people in Gen Z like anxiety. And that may sound silly. It may sound something like we can dismiss and be like, these kids are so weak. Um, but yeah, I mean, kids are weak, but can you blame them for what they're being told by the media and by teachers and by almost all of our institutions that pitch climate change as an apocalyptic and an imminent Not threat? At all. No, you can't blame them. Um, and on I top mean, you can of blame that, them for being cowardly. It's a, it's a weak character trait to be afraid of imminent death as a teenager. But they're being conditioned to be weak by all of our institutions as well. And the other I thought thing, I was immortal until my late 20s. um so and again i I don't know that i can blame you for that uh but the the other thing i was thinking of while you guys were uh talking about the climate thing is that i remember doing an interview with one of those um babies in the texas legislature that fled the state uh this summer and i asked um so is it your position that none of the emergency regulations you implemented for voting in the era of covid is it the case that you like nothing short of making all of those permanent will please you he said yes um and and that shows that this is going to go beyond climate because the rhetoric of the left has reached a point where that the the sort of election integrity legislation that was passed in texas or passed in states uh sort of red states joe biden was referring to them as jim eagle um we were talking about them as though they they were literally bringing back the Jim Crow era, and not just but sort worse, of right, because right that's but worse, the whole evil thing, right? and not just like feverish pundits on uh, silly CNN panels. Like that was coming from the president of the United States. It was coming from our media institutions, and it does seem as though the left now has convinced itself that it is in a perpetu- that we are in a perpetual state of emergency um, when it comes to everything, climate, racism, whatever it is, it's, we're back in Jim Crow. We have 10 years and none of those 10 year things have ever panned out. So I don't know, Chris, I feel like this is going to go beyond climate. 
I think it, I mean, yeah, you're right. That's, that's the difference between the right and the left is the right generally takes a longer view of things, despite the left always claiming to look at the arc of history bending towards justice, <laughs> yeah. which, by the way, is a nearly meaningless phrase. Like asking someone to explain what that means is just stupid. It's a bunch of pretty words put together. The, the, the left treats every single thing like it is the end of the planet. If you don't get this infrastructure bill passed, if you don't pass reconciliation, you know, try, try getting the average person in these in, in Washington D.C. who is a lobbyist explain to you what reconciliation actually contains. The but if they don't get it, there is going to be certain death. If they don't if they don't take control of all aspects of the economy to save the climate, we will all die tomorrow. <laughs> if Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis has a beer with one of the citizenries in the street outdoors, he is going to die, and everyone's going to die with him, and they all deserve it. Um, I mean, I remember talking to a very good friend of mine, very smart guy, with a degree in political philosophy, a, a, a master's, probably a doctorate by now, from a university in England, screaming at me over at, over the over beers in Boston. Are you going to tell the king of England, uh, the king of Fiji, when his island is underwater, that global mm. warming is not real? And I said gladly. And then I got to text him ten years later and remind him that Fiji actually still had the same landmass <laughs> as before. Um, Everything is like that, and that's one of the reasons that they win. That's one of the reasons they're out there marching, why they're sobbing, why they're screeching. It's an unending teenage temper tantrum at the highest levels of power, and it's really difficult to to stop it because you can't just, like, take them and spank them like a kid and ground them. It's like this unending temper tantrum is something that we need to live with. And it's interesting. There's a point in, 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 the ma- in, a, in that British magazine, Unheard, and that's, U-N-H-E-R-D, like away from the herd kind of thinking, uh, that pointed out that in 2018, 2019, we were having these kind of discussions on the conservative side of things, intellectually. The Sora Bamares, Tucker Carlson's, a bunch of folks at the Federalist, I know a bunch of folks at the American Conservative, including yourself, Sean, mm-hmm. Tyne Hillsdale and Claremont saying, you know, we could continue with this atomistic um, libertine kind of commercialist individualist society which seems to take the liberal order for granted and it ex- expects it to be normal or we could push a new right a bolder right that that actually hold, says the government has an active role to play for the good to be ordered society morally toward god toward the greater good and i know that's a sophomoric explanation to be talking to a political scientist about or a political <laughs> philosopher we were having that discussion. It was a back and forth. But events of the world overtook us, mm. and events on the left overtook us. So while we were battling back and forth in the pages of National Review and the Federalist and Claremont, um, the left just went ahead and seized it, and the entire West has seized it. But isn't that the story of the conservative movement since the <laughs> since the 80s, right? Like just navel-gazing and spinning its wheels on these abstract well, questions. In Because it's like people get so pulled into these petty disagreements. It's like the entire Sorab and David French discourse spawned a million different think pieces, and it was, I think, constructive. And it, in some ways, it was very clarifying and helpful, but it never goes beyond the page. Well, the thing is, no, I think it did go beyond the page. You have folks like it, Holly, it, that, and you've got a number yeah, of candidates who are now coming up, and you have Republicans. But Holly was doing that before. He was doing that before, but this was kind of giving somewhat of a backbone of it to it. You got the JD Vance's, other people who are granted just candidates and just candidates for U.S. Senate, not even the governorship. But you see more and more politicians returning to that Rick Santorum kind of Patrick Buchanan model of what of society having a role in morality, mm-hmm. and. I think that's a growing thing in the GOP, and it's actually won the debate. But in the meantime, the left was always ready for tyranny. I mean, Jonah Goldberg's gone completely insane, but he pointed this out years ago, that they were always one step from tyranny. And the entire left has now, which is in control of most of the commanding heights, 
moved beyond the liberal order, and now it's society ordered towards some perverted thing that's not for the greater good, not toward God, but toward their man-made construct. So I think what's what you know many on the right have been sort of realizing, and with the with the the reason why the left, I think I would argue the left wins, is because they have a substantive vision of the good, and they and they. To, to have a substantive vision of the good is is uh, allows you the kind of moral authority to promote it uh, in the public square and in law and in regulation and everything else. But the, where the right has sort of viewed the has had understood the public square as basically uh, 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 naked or as uh, Father John Newhouse put it once uh, or kind of li- uh, neutral, right? The neutral public square. Uh, the problem is, is liberal neutrality really is a myth. Uh, and every law is uh, the instantiation of someone's idea of morality. And so when you sort of at, when you when you when you approach policymaking, po- doing politics uh, uh, and doing law in a way that sort of assumes this uh, neutral public square, you are going to lose, hmm. because, particularly if you're against people who do not view it that way who have a con- uh, a substantive vision of the good and who are willing to use power to implement it. But is their substantive vision of the good at this point like secular hedonism? Like it's it's nihilistic. I think it is, but I mean they they claim, you know, think about this. You know, justice is one of the most foundational concepts in the western tradition. Right. It goes all the way back to Plato, right? The right, all the right can do is denounce social justice. Mm-hmm. There is no concept of justice rightly understood that the right and sort that's of silly even because so, all justice is social justice. You can't right. justice doesn't exist with one person. Yeah. I can't be sitting there banging my head against the wall like I did the other night and scream, "Where is my justice?" Right. Like it's just me. Right. Justice is immediately societal. It's between right. two people. So their whole thing of social justice is garbage. Yeah. But the left has changed the definition of justice. And this time they've changed the definition of democracy mm-hmm. in this time. Democracy yeah. used to mean rule by the people, different parties, free parties running for elections. Now democracy means whatever Fauci says and whatever the right says is not democracy. Mm-hmm. That's right. kind of an older thing, but it's gotten right. even more so. Same with racism and violence and men and women. And with justice, totally. people are saying... People, you see the George Floyd lawyer and, and, and George Floyd's family out there and all the Black Lives Matter people screaming, you know, is this justice that we put this police officer away for 15, 20 years or however long he's going to be away? Is that justice? No, it's not justice because it didn't restore George to me. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, granted. When's the last time you spoke to him? The What are you talking about? You, justice is not about bringing back the dead. Justice no. can't undo wrong. Pun, justice can only right. punish wrongdoing in a way. Um, it can't undo Wrong, and the, their whole idea of justice. There will never be any justice for slavery because you, we can't go back and undo slavery in the West. Right. So there, there, it's just a perpetual crisis they must always search for, and they'll never be satisfied. I mean, there's two. So in the classical tradition, there are two kinds of there are two kinds of justice that Aristotle talks about. One is there's um, distributive justice and retributive justice, right? So d- distributive justice has to do with uh, everyone uh, receiving. T- uh, they're due, right, in some sense. This can be both in terms of uh, material things, in terms of honor, in terms of, you know, et cetera. And then there's retributive justice, which a- attempts to right wrongs, although it, they can't be done. But, it, you know, that's like what we call what we call criminal criminal justice. And, um, yeah, look, there's – justice is always an ideal. It's an ideal to be pursued. Uh, certainly, you know, James Madison talks about this in The Federalists and so forth, you know, that the ends of government – 
uh, our justice and so forth. But it's always it's always an ideal. And and actually, you know, I would actually go one step further and say justice. We should reclaim the language of justice on the right, but we also should reclaim the language of friendship, civic friendship. Aristotle says this too. He says justice is only uh, required again uh, between unequals. Right. If you amongst friends, no justice is needed because if you and I have a fight, we don't need justice. <laughs> right. We just right. have to sort it out. Exactly. <laughs> we, ju- we just sort it out. Exactly. So, you know, so there's a way in which justice already uh, assumes a society that is not amongst friends. So, you know, I would even encourage us to, to go to raise the heights, to raise the vision uh, even higher to civic friendship uh, of some sort. And that's where the debate should be had. But no justice for Emily. Uh, Long-suffering Emily. Yes, no justice and no peace for me either because those are necessarily entangled. Are your thoughts running in endless circles in your mind? I know I've been there. With the stresses of the last couple of years, it's more important than ever to practice living healthier and happier lives. We talk about that on this show all the time. So what if a few minutes was all it took to change your relationship with stress and anxiety, transforming your life for the better? Well, that's the power of meditation with Headspace. Our thoughts can be confusing enough. Meditation doesn't have to be. Headspace is your convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep all in one app, making it super easy to catch your breath and to make time for your mental health. And it's one of the most science-backed meditation apps in the world, proving meditation works. A study proves in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. All right, so Headspace, if you're struggling with stress, if you're struggling with anxiety, you got to give it a try. Let's actually give it a try right now. So either sitting down or lying down, just taking a big, deep breath. In through the nose and out through the mouth. As you breathe out, you can just gently close the eyes. And just feeling the weight of the body pressing down. Allowing any tension to release. Imagining the muscles in the body just switching off. Relaxing, letting go of any tension. Just feeling the body sink deeper down to the seat or the surface beneath you. And you can either gently open the eyes again or just leave them shut now. Meditation is surprisingly helpful. I've recently found Headspace and I'm excited to learn how to use it to meditate because it can really be a powerful, powerful tool, more than you even realize if you've never done it. So find some Headspace at headspace.com slash federalist and get one month free of their entire meditation library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash federalist today. Headspace.com slash federalist. Um, well, that's sort of like the point that, again, the point that Chris is making, I think, is is very much tied to 
the nihilism of the left um, right now. Because mm-hmm. when you when you destroy these foundational constructs of our society, then everything can be weaponized as an emergency. When you yeah. say, you're stealing my future. Well, when you say, no, um, and by the way, if you're watching this, I'm in the same room as these guys. <laughs> I just have a different camera. Um, but when you say that, uh, when you say that, no, okay, Chris, <laughs> when you say that um, nothing when you say that truth is in and of itself a construct of white supremacy, which right. is a thing that has been argued. Yep. Um, and when you say Just that... It's like all- being on time. Yeah, okay. Um, when you say all of these time things, the yeah, time is a contract. You're accepting this this very destructive premise. I don't know that we have we have ever. I mean, this modernity is turning into something um, that is unrooted and untethered from reality. And yeah. when you have that kind of climate, um, political warfare becomes increasingly detached from truth and from reality and from those foundational constructs like justice, democracy, republicanism. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and free expression, all of these things. And I feel like what Chris is talking about in terms of climate is he he's saying right now that we are on the precipice. If things feel bad now, they feel chaotic. We are on the precipice of something much more ugly and and much much uglier, much more sort of anxiety inducing. And this this great research stuff, all these worries that people have. So I, I interviewed Mike Bastash for the piece that's uh, out today. Uh, that I wrote about this, and there's a pod- did a podcast with him on it as well, and he was saying that if you look at some of these papers that have started to come out, some of the f- things coming out of the United Nations and how to deal with climate crisis, there are now these little footnotes that are appearing that say, we now know it is possible to change human behavior. Mm-hmm. So, and that made me feel good when he told me that because I felt kind of crazy and conspiratorial before, but the left has long now, for the last couple of years, since President Trump was elected, the left has stopped saying the quiet part quietly. They're saying it all very loudly. Mm-hmm. And they're openly admitting, we know with these new systems how to destroy economies, how to put public health before all things, how to shut down. They, know, they already knew how to shut down the coal industry. Now they know how to stop us from traveling. They can make it work remotely. They can say, stop taking airplanes. Of course, this won't apply to them. But they have learned that humanity, even in the West, is completely willing to be controlled and malleable in a way that we fancied ourselves not, and they're going to use it. And that that level, it's, we're not the only ones here at the Federalist who have noticed, uh-oh, the left has noticed, oh, goody, we can do this. Tom Friedman has long wished that we'd be more like China. Now we are. And that we're literally taking our how-to-handle-public-health-crisis cues from Wuhan. How insane, how uninventive, how incredibly stupid is that? These people like Fauci who think they're geniuses are literally just copying communist scientists. Mm-hmm. That is what they're doing. They're, they're pale imitations. They are weak. They are dumb. And then we're, we're doing this over and over again with the censorship. I mean, already in CNN or CBS or MSNBC, you can't go up there and be like, yo, this uh, Greta Thunberg is kind of an autistic weirdo. What the, why are we taking global cues from her? Uh, I mean, but her autism has social media. It, her autism has nothing to do with that. It's her. It's her. Like, it, no, it's her completely. Her driving obsession with this one issue at the expense of a lot of other societal good. I mean, it's that her lack of, of credibility as a child and non-expert. Yeah, and well, she's being used as a tool. And so this gets back to our original point, right? Is that uh, there's a way in which all uh, all of us, you know, when you when you when everything's an emergency. Uh, you lose the capacity for deliberative politics. And democracy is nothing if it's not deliberative. Uh, and, uh, and you know, again, friends sort of coming together to, to discuss the good, you know, in light of re- reality, in light of the limitations that reality imposes. 
and so on and so forth. And part part of part of what happens is is that uh, when you when you sort of substitute science for statesmanship, uh, you end up re- doing away with the the ability to engage in regular politics because everything's an emergency. And by the way, science already tells us what we need to do. So if you disagree, then you just need to be shut up, right? And, mm-hmm. and shoved to the side. And so what happens is statesmen uh, step to the side, statesmen and stateswomen, right? Ste- step <laughs> to the side and uh, and sort of just allow these kind of petty tyrants, sci- uh, petty tyrant scientists uh, to dictate to them what they sh- they should be doing. When in fact, what they should be doing as statesmen is taking that data uh, under consideration, uh, combining it with all the other considerations that they have, right? The economy. Uh, more, be actual more, statesmen. Yeah, be actual statesmen and utilize prudence, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and determine what the best way to go is. Take responsibility. That's your job. And that's that something that job. we've lost completely during COVID is this mm-hmm. singular crisis of Fauci and these folks, you know, they might be pretty smart in their field, sure. but they're not very smart in human interaction. They're not very right. smart in familial needs. They're clearly not very smart in, like, what they don't even think Christmas is important. They think that re- worship of God is a secondary hobby. Right. Hmm. So right. they may have a good understanding of how disease works, but they don't have a good understanding of society works, like a statesman yep. ought to. Exactly. Like someone who's taken in the whole aspect ought to. Exactly. Um, and that's what I meant by my flippant insult for... Uh, for Greta is that she she's hyper focused in a way that allows her to have a deep under deep kind of thinking about I think she's wrong yep. on on global climate change but without any consideration of what are these lives that are impacted what is what is our human interaction what is our role together mm-hmm. society how mm-hmm. to how do we get together it, it reminds me of those posters I used to see in the on the subway in D.C. that would say the the coal plant is increased. Children who live around a coal plant have a eight percent chance, or whatever, three percent chance higher rate of asthma. Mm-hmm. And as if that was a good reason to shut down a coal plant. But those advertisements were taking one view of what was going on around a coal plant. Right. What they weren't realizing is if you shut down that coal plant, children who live around coal plants also happen to have a higher chance of having parents that are employed. Right. Yeah. And if your nice. parents are unemployed, and drug rates go up, and alcoholism goes up, right. and abuse rates go up, and the school shuts down, and the and the town breaks down, well, that is significantly worse. You have to take a very right. holistic view of these things. Right. We've surrendered that during COVID, and the way that climate scientists want us to do it now, and the leaders is surrender that to that. These are the folks who fly mm-hmm. in like Michael Bloomberg to cut the ribbon mm-hmm. on a shutting down of a coal plant and then fly home in their jet and just go back to New York. Well, and this is another amazing... So what, I, I'll just add to that point first and say Michael Schellenberger talks about this a lot, which is that like the level of death that ha- so like the the levels of death from natural disaster have declined enormously over the last century um, because of technologies and because of all of these things that we now see as a, a threat to our existence um, because they contribute to what they think is climate change um, and actually what it has done is made human life a lot safer and um, a lot more comfortable in ways that the people who are waging this war on climate change would not want to sacrifice or give up um, and. It, when you sort of lose the focus on all of these different things, like we, it makes us think, for instance, that um, the deaths of uh, African Americans at the hands of the of the hands of the police are going up. It's not the case. That's that is not the trend lines don't support that, um, and so they're able to sort of construct their own sense of reality. Um, and this, the other point I wanted to make is that this gets to a debate that is happening on the right right now, and I think Chris's point is super salient in that the more 
bureaucracy you create, the more tools the left has um, to usurp freedoms. Um, and that's, I'm not just going to go off now and say that what, you know, the, the nationalists say pejoratively is, is zombie Reaganism. I'm not going to say like, I'm not endorsing the sort of like Steve Moore vision for America, but there is something very important about the fact that the vaccine mandate, as we've talked about, was implemented through a, a little sentence in the founding of OSHA um, that was signed by Richard Nixon. Um, that, that was, there's this emergency authority under OSHA. And I think that's another point here is conservatives do need to be very careful and, and think very hard about the role of the federal and, and state governments. Um, and that's a conversation that seems to be getting lost in all of this, but I think is relevant in these conversations about emergency powers. It, it's helpful in Michigan and Indiana and, uh, and in other states across the entire country, maybe less so Indiana, Pennsylvania, to where they're, they're, the legislatures are looking at a very specific definition, a, a timeline and limits on emergency power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The unending emergency powers that we've experienced under our executives are wild. Yeah. Uh, and, it's and it's allowed them to do... They've, they've, the left tried for years and years and years to push their climate garbage. They almost always failed. They, the Obama didn't really succeed. They were always able to curtail around the edges what they could do with executive. Like You might have noticed, you probably didn't. Just like we always blamed COVID and not the politicians, we blamed... You know, just changes and not the not uh, and not the politicians for the fact that your dishwasher doesn't really work anymore and your dryer doesn't really work anymore and your light flickers when you dim it and all this just kind of just basic indecencies that we had to put up with. The, like I feel like my grandma's dishwasher always worked. People didn't quite realize it. The left it was ever able to do much beyond a lot a lot of tinkering around the edges and denying of different things. Until they real, because they always tried to use democracy. COVID has made them realize I don't need to use democracy. Mm -hmm. I just need to use emergency powers. Yeah, I think mm. it's an emergency. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point um, that you know, look, the the bureaucracy is there, and I think that in, as long as it is there, we conservatives need to um, learn how to utilize it. Right, you learn how to wield power for our own substantive uh, ends. Uh, that said. You know, the, the American conservative has long been, um, we call ourselves Main Street conservatives, right? And the re what we mean by that is uh, is something like conservatism begins at the local level, right? The family, the local community. And if you don't have thriving Main Streets, if you don't have uh, families that are thriving that live on those and work on those Main Streets, you're not going to have an America. And so I, I, I completely agree with that, uh, that conservatives also need to, think seriously about how to uh, not only not only utilize the bureaucracy for our own ends, but also to devolve power to the extent that's possible back to the, uh, the local levels. And part of that entails uh, getting involved at the local levels, uh, you know, running for your school board, running for your uh, county council, running for your city council. That's a, uh, that's a huge amount. I hope yeah. the parents of Virginia realize they can't go home and stop just because they got Yunkin elected. Exactly. The schools are still in charge. Oh, I think they, they need know to that. fight. I think they exactly. know that too. Yeah. Uh, I, but the Tea Party didn't quite understand that. Like uh, some mm -hmm. some people did. A lot of people mm -hmm. did local elections, but yeah. in general, getting Republicans elected ain't going to solve this. You I, need to treat everything like an existential emergency, so, like the left does. Yeah, and so I mean, part, you know, so the where those two things uh, meet is conservatives need to learn and get comfortable with wielding power, right? Yeah. At, the, at all levels, at all levels, because until and unless we do that, and unless until and unless we recognize that there is no such thing as a neutral public square, and we have to promote a substantive vision of the good, I don't think 
uh, much else will, will will matter. Yeah, wielding cultural power and not just sort of coming in and doing tax cuts. Yes, um, correct. Which Absolutely. is very comfortable for Republicans. For sure. It is super comfortable on, on that end. Um, sure. They can yeah. talk about it. It's not emotional. It's it's not – no one – it's it's very difficult for people to tell us a story about a kid who was hurt by tax cuts. Like, the, <laughs> yeah. the Republicans are comfortable there. They, they can't they, – they're not comfortable fighting for the moral issues that get sticky and icky. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, um, and, and to some extent it's like, well, the left's existential – crisis and perpetual state of emergency has become an emergency because yeah. they it's, it is truly an emergency and yeah. we you know i don't think people understood that until very very recently yeah um, imagine like yeah. being around like aoc's fiance or husband or boyfriend or whatever he is like, partner do you think she ever turns it off or is like <laughs> everything a crisis have you seen her instagram <laughs> you no. should watch her instagram videos it is a lot of crises i mean th- th- there's a lot of personality i'll say <laughs> <laughs> well Sean Riley of the American Conservative, a lecturer at Hillsdale College. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. And I'm I'm not thanking you. I was just going to (laughs) say no thanks to Christopher Bedford for his contributions. Uh, Of course, we're kidding. We always appreciate Chris stopping by. Thank you, Emily. (laughs) You're welcome. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.